Our reading of today is taken from the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, 1 to 11. It says, Six days before the first over, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha herself, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a fine of perfume nut, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judah Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why, was, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worthy a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put in it, into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that, Jesus, that she should serve this perfume for the days of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So, the sheep priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. This is the word of God. Good. Well, thank you, Jock. I'm very conscious of the fact it's not easy to read in a language that's not your first language, and I think you did very well. So thank you very much for that clear reading. Friends, let's um, have our Bibles open, please, at the passage that Jock has just read for us, and um, I will lead us in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, it is our great joy this morning to worship you together and to, to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. Father, we thank you that you are our Father and that you know each one of us through and through and that your word is able first to find us and then to speak to us and then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, now, this passage will come alive to our hearts and minds even this morning. And so we say together, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
how much is Jesus worth? Uh, and especially in a society that is gripped by the fear of death, how much is Jesus worth? Uh, that's the question that uh, this passage is going to answer for us this morning. Now, whatever your own thoughts about that might be, I'm sure we would all agree, wouldn't we, that over the past two years, large parts of the world have been paralyzed by the fear of death. And the writer to the Hebrews talks about this. Uh, he talks about people being held in slavery by their fear of death. That's Hebrews 2.15. I think that's a pretty good description, don't you, of the way that many people have been feeling and behaving during the pandemic. They've been literally held in slavery by their fear of death. And uh, in those circumstances, how much is Jesus worth? Now, I don't know, maybe you're listening this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you might be thinking, well, I don't really understand the question. Um, for me, Jesus is a historical figure. Uh, I like some of his ideas, but he's not worth anything very much to me. So I don't know what you mean. Uh, when I'm faced with the fear of death, I'm looking to doctors and governments for help. I'm not really looking to Jesus. But most of us in this room are followers of Jesus. And uh, you might be thinking, well, <laughs> I know the answer you're expecting from me, Simon. Uh, when you ask, how much is Jesus worth? We're supposed to say, well, he's worth a lot. But you might, in the back of your mind, say, well, I know that's the right answer, but I won't really know how much Jesus is worth to me until I find myself in a situation where following him comes at a price. Until there is a cost to following Jesus, I won't really know, actually, how much he's worth to me. When uh, cholera <coughs> broke out in London in the 19th century, the, the London City Mission uh, sent missionaries into the different areas that were affected, and they were, went to care for the sick and to comfort them with the gospel. Some of those missionaries died. That's what Jesus was worth to them. And uh, when missionaries from Europe... Uh, took the gospel to West Africa, they took their coffins with them because the diseases were so hectic that their life expectancy was generally about six months. That's what Jesus was worth to them. What is Jesus worth to us? Some of you have made very great sacrifices to follow Jesus. Some of you have put up with rejection and humiliation for following Christ. Uh, some of you, as we've heard this morning from Philip, have left family 
and loved ones behind for months at a time to study at college. Some of you have given up financially rewarding career opportunities in order to be able to serve the Lord with your particular gifts and talents. And you've made very real sacrifices that reveal what Jesus is worth to you. Now, in our passage, we're going to look at different answers to that question from three people. We're going to focus on Mary, Judas Iscariot, and Mary's brother, Lazarus. It's good to know that in John's book, uh, chapter 12 is a bridge. So chapters 1 to 11 have given us all but one of the great signs or miracles that Jesus performed. And from chapter 13 onwards, uh, we find ourselves in the shadow of the cross and the suffering of Jesus, leading up to the final sign, which is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus at the very end of the Gospel. So if you like, chapter 12 is a bridge between the signs and the suffering. In verse 1, we're told that it takes place six days before the Passover. This is actually the third Passover mentioned in John's Gospel, the third Passover during the public ministry of Jesus. If you cast your mind back to chapter 10, back in chapter 10 we were in the Feast of Dedication, which happened in December. The Passover happens at Easter, March, April, about now, sometime between December uh, in chapter 10 and the Passover, Jesus, as we know, has performed his greatest sign yet, the raising of Lazarus. Verse 1 tells us that Lazarus lived in Bethany, a small village a couple of miles outside Jerusalem. And if you're tuning in for the first time, you need to know that Lazarus lived there with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. We don't actually know very much about them. We don't know how old they were uh, or whether they'd ever been married or widowed or had any children. All we actually know is that Jesus loved them and that he stayed with them from time to time. And in chapter 11, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. So the story we're looking at this morning takes place not very long after that miracle. And so not surprisingly in verse 2, there is a dinner given in Jesus' honour. So Jesus has come back to Bethany. It's a place of some danger for Jesus because it's so close to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is the place where the enemies of Jesus are. But he's come back for this thank you dinner party. Mark, interestingly, also talks about this in his gospel in chapter 14. And he tells us that it took place in the house of someone called Simon the leper. 
and uh, for this dinner party, uh, Martha is on the catering team. She's serving. And Lazarus is amongst those reclining at the table with Jesus. And uh, I think the conversation at the dinner table must have been really rather odd, don't you? I mean, imagine that you're at a dinner party and uh, the person next to you says, hi, uh, tell me about yourself, and you do. And then you say, well, tell me about yourself. And he says, well, my name's Lazarus. And uh, you say, well, it's lovely to meet you, Lazarus. How are things going for you? And uh, Lazarus says, well, actually, it's been, um, it's been rather difficult. Um, I've been extremely ill. Uh, I had to give up work. And uh, you, you look at Lazarus and you say, well, I'm so glad you've recovered. Um, you seem to be fine now. And uh, I see you've, you've recovered your appetite, which is obviously a good sign. And uh, he says, well, actually, I didn't recover. I died. And they buried me in a tomb. Uh, my body began to decompose. I hope I'm not putting you off your meal, by the way. But that's how it was. And then after four days, four days after I died, the man that you see there, reclining on the other side of the table, he came and stood outside the tomb. He called my name and he said, Lazarus, come out. And his words made me alive. And I walked out of the tomb. What a strange dinner party it must have been. One man at the dinner party had been physically dead for four days. But here he was, very much alive and enjoying a delicious meal. And someone on the other side of the table had raised him from the grave by speaking words to a dead corpse. Well, you can't have a stranger dinner party than that. And now, John directs our attention to Mary. And what Mary does is really, really fascinating. She takes about a pint uh, or half a litre of pure nard, which we're told is an expensive perfume. Now, I don't know, but I expect that some of you ladies might have a small bottle of expensive perfume at home. I doubt very much if any of you have half a litre's worth. Uh, if you have, your husband or your boyfriend must love you a very great deal. Uh, I love Gillian, but I'm ashamed to say I have to confess I've never given her half a litre of an expensive perfume. Uh, it's actually Alice and Michael's second wedding anniversary today. So, Michael, here's food for thought. <laughs> but in any event, one would be hard-pressed, I think, to give a gift of this kind of perfume because we're told in the passage that it was worth a year's wages. So think about that. If you take a year's wages on the minimum wage in South Africa, 
that is approximately 42,000 rand. So, 42,000 rand for half a litre of perfume. We don't know exactly why Mary had this extraordinarily expensive perfume in her possession. It might have been a gift, might have been her inheritance. But you know, in South Africa, you would have to work really rather hard to spend 42,000 rand on a bottle of perfume. I did a quick look online, and the most expensive bottle of perfume I came across was called Aventus for Her, and it's a snip at 14,000 rand for 250 mils. So half a litre would be 28,000 rand. So we're not yet at 42, are we? This is, in this story, off the scale, expensive perfume. And Mary comes and she empties the whole lot over Jesus. Mark says in his gospel that Mary poured it over his head and body. John here focuses on his feet. But I guess if it's half a litre, it went everywhere. Went over his whole body, all the way down to his feet. She does this with her hair unbound, which was a scandal in that culture. And she then wipes his feet with her hair. Quite clearly... By her actions, Mary is saying, this man Jesus is worth all the adoration of my heart and my life. He's raised my brother from the dead. Nothing, nothing is too precious to give him. And the fragrance of that perfume and the fragrance, if you like, of Mary's adoring love fills the whole house. I don't know what the smells were in that house before this happened. In those days, probably not all that great. But now the fragrance of the perfume is, is overpowering. Remember, will you please, that John, who wrote this, he was an eyewitness, he was there. So his comment, at the end of verse 3, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, that is a personal memory. For him, he was there. You can't actually forget just how overpowering that fragrance was. And uh, in Mark's Gospel, the Lord Jesus says about Mary that wherever the Gospel is preached throughout the world, this is going to be told in memory of her. That means what Mary does is unusually important. It's a beautiful, extravagant, sacrificial love. And here's the point. When you and I come face to face with death, everything else gets put in perspective, doesn't it? The things that we worry about at night when we can't sleep, the job uncertainties, the financial pressures, the relationship difficulties, all of those things get put into perspective, don't they, in the face of death. You know that. And Mary, of course, has come face to face with death. Uh, she had seen her 
dearly loved brother die. She'd been to her brother's funeral and she has seen Jesus raise him from the dead. So she knows that no sacrifice is too great for him. We'll come back to that in a moment. But first of all, you see, John tells us, doesn't he, that the beautiful fragrance of Mary's worship is spoiled by the ugly stench of hypocrisy. Come with me to verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. And we discover in verse 6 that Judas wasn't just one of the twelve. He was the treasurer. He was the keeper of the money bag. And uh, Judas objects to Mary's behavior. And on the surface, his objection sounds really quite reasonable. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold? I mean, it was hugely valuable. It was worth 42000 Rand, think of the number of people we could have helped with that. And uh, in Mark's gospel, we're told that at this point, all the other disciples started grumbling as well. Uh, it's a bit like what sometimes happens on a WhatsApp group, isn't it? I'm sure you've all experienced this, that one person in the group ex starts complaining about something, and within five minutes, everyone else has piled in as well. And that's what was happening here. What a waste. What on earth was Mary thinking? And before we hear what Jesus has to say about that, John gives us the explanation in verse 6 of what was really going on. Uh, you see, Judas didn't say that because he cared about the poor. No, no. He wasn't really concerned about the poor at all. The truth is... He was a thief. As the, the treasurer, uh, he managed the ministry finances, and over the years, he'd found ways of helping himself without anybody noticing. And uh, here, he's missing out on a piece of the 42,000 rand that might otherwise have been put in the money bag. Now, friends, Judas is a tremendous warning to us. Long before he betrayed the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the love of money was already gripping his heart. Now, we don't actually know why Judas signed up as a, a disciple in the first place. I mean, of course, we know Jesus called him, but we don't know what Judas's original motivation was when he joined the Jesus movement. But before long, Judas is part of Jesus' ministry team for what he can get out of it. See, he's happy enough when Jesus is popular and people are flocking to hear him, things are going well, but in truth, Jesus, a Judas is only in it for what he can get out of it. And you see, that puts him on the road that in the end, will lead to him betraying his master for 30 pieces of silver. 
Now, friends, in our passage, we're meant to see how different Judas is from Mary. Mary understands how precious Jesus is. But Judas hasn't even begun. Then as the grumbling starts in verse 7, Jesus interrupts, leave her alone. Imagine the disciples are scowling and they're grumbling, they're ganging up on Mary. What a stupid woman, they're saying. Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. There's some discussion in the commentaries about what the word save means there. Because she hasn't saved it, has she? She's used it. But what Jesus means is that what Mary has done is to anoint me for my burial. Now, you can't have a bigger conversation stopper than that. Can you imagine the the change of atmosphere over the dinner table? Imagine everybody stopped talking and there would have been a sort of shocked silence. Jesus breaks the silence, verse 8. You will always have the poor among you, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy, but you will not always have me, because any day now I'm going to die and be buried. And if you remember, when we were looking at chapter 11, we saw that the reason that Jesus was able to call Lazarus out of the tomb was that Jesus himself was going to be laid in a tomb. And the reason that Jesus has the power to rescue men and women from death and from the fear of death today is because he died for sinners and was laid in a tomb. Now, we don't know, actually, whether Mary kind of had a sense of what was about to happen to Jesus. We can't be sure about that. But what she's done is to demonstrate that the reason Jesus is so precious is that he's going to die for sinners like me and for sinners like you. Friends, we do need, I think, all of us to be warned by the hypocrisy of Judas. I don't know how you react when you hear about the sacrifices Christians make for Jesus. This week I was reading about small groups of Christians who are risking their lives right now this morning, taking food and other essential supplies into Ukraine. They're not official groups, they're operating secretly. And they're taking these supplies as far into Ukraine as they can possibly go. They're not driving big lorries that I guess could easily be identified by the Russians and taken out in a missile strike. No, they're taking these supplies in in small delivery vans that are driven by extremely brave Christians. Very often, the drivers of these vans are women, Christian women. And the risks they're taking are huge. I mean, you can imagine what would happen to them, can't you, 
if the Russians caught them. But that's what Jesus is worth to them. I wonder how you react to that. Um, if you say, well, you know, I suppose I'm glad somebody's doing it, but it does sound very reckless and irresponsible. I mean, what about the families, their families back home? What if something happened to them? Who would look after the children? Surely they should leave that kind of thing to professional organizations like the Red Cross. Well, if we think like that, we're actually standing very close indeed to Judas Iscariot. Because that's what Judas thought about Mary's extravagant devotion. He was thinking it's over the top and it is a stupid thing to do. And friends, the moment, the very moment that you and I think there is some sacrifice that we could make for Jesus that is too big, we are on the road to betrayal. So we need to be warned by Judas. We also need to be inspired by Mary's adoration. I suppose that those of us who are Christians today are only beginning to grasp how much we owe to Jesus. And there's a sense in which we're going to spend eternity realizing how much we owe to Jesus who entered the tomb that we might be brought out of the tomb. There's one other thing to notice before we close. We've looked at Mary and her adoration, and we've looked at Judas and his hypocrisy. Verses 9 to 11, we're going to look very briefly at Lazarus himself. So we read in verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Presumably, the, the word about Lazarus spread like wildfire. I'm sure that it did. And unsurprisingly, people wanted to see Lazarus for themselves. Verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Notice there how extraordinarily easy it is for evil to multiply. You see, the chief priests started out by deciding to kill just one man, Jesus. But now they have to kill two. And the reason, of course, they have to kill Lazarus is that he is living proof that Jesus can raise people from the dead. So, you know, if you want to stop the Jesus movement before it grows any more, you've got to kill Lazarus as well, haven't you? Of course, in the end, it's a totally ridiculous exercise, isn't it? I suppose that uh, Lazarus really was rather like one of those candles that you sometimes find at children's birthday parties. Do you know the candles I mean? Those ones that you light, you blow them out, and the candle lights again. Well, Lazarus is a bit like that, isn't he? 
So the plan to kill Lazarus is futile. You decide you're going to kill him, but Jesus has just raised him from the dead. So do you really think you're going to win in the end? Well, be that as it may, the point is this. If you are a Christian, though you haven't yet been raised from the dead physically, you have been raised from the dead spiritually. And you are living testimony, therefore, that Jesus raises dead men and women. And what we learn from Lazarus in this story is that therefore there are going to be people and forces in the world who do not want you around. There'll be people in your family. There'll be people in your workplace. People perhaps even at college, yes, even in a Bible college, who in their hearts would actually prefer it if you weren't around anymore because you're a living testimony to what Jesus can do. But what we need to remember is that Lazarus is actually as safe as Jesus is strong. Is that right? See, they might kill Lazarus. We don't actually know whether they killed him or not. They might have done. But if they did, he will be raised to life, physical life, by Jesus on the last day. And in the meantime, he will be consciously in the presence of the Lord. So Lazarus is absolutely as safe as Jesus is strong. Because you can't ultimately kill a man or a woman whom Jesus has raised from the dead. You can't do it. And if we are Christian believers, well, we must expect that kind of hostility sometimes. We must expect it. But we can be 150% confident in the Lord Jesus. So how much is Jesus worth in the face of death? Well, can I say to us this morning that it is impossible for anyone here to make a sacrifice for Jesus that will prove to be too big. Most of you are familiar with the work of the mission agency Open Doors. And as you know, Open Doors tell us from time to time about the sacrifices that missionaries are making this morning in countries where it's really, really hard to be a Christian. And their sacrifices are sometimes deeply moving. But they'll never be too big. Jesus is worth every single sacrifice that they make. And there are some of you here who in the days to come will pay a very big price for following Jesus. It might be back in your home country. It might be in cross-cultural mission. It might be serving the Lord in a local ministry here in Cape Town. Or it might be simply courageous witness to your family or your colleagues in the workplace. And in each case, my dear friends, there will be a price to be paid. But whatever price you and I might pay to serve Jesus, it can never be too big.
because nothing is more precious than the man who can raise the dead. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we, we thank you for the worth and the preciousness of the Lord Jesus. We pray for grace to grasp the measure of his worth more clearly. We pray for any among us this morning who might already be paying a big price for following Jesus. And we pray that when you call any of us to pay a price for following him, that we would do it gladly, knowing how valuable he really is. We ask it for his name's sake.